0: All right. we are considering together in our study guide, um, chapter 10, which deals with Christ, our prophet, and our priest. And um, what we have been talking about recently is the utility and value of studying the ceremonial law, which has passed away and is no longer operative. And the question then arises, why does it occupy so much of the Old Testament? And what's the value now of studying it and reading it? And the answer to that question is, is that the old covenant, even though it's ceremonial laws have passed away, still has a great deal to teach us through those ceremonial laws about Jesus Christ, whom those ceremonial laws illustrate and foreshadow. And so we saw that, uh, for example, we can learn a great deal about the mediation of Jesus Christ by looking at. Moses, who was a mediator between God and Israel. And we see him especially carrying out that role in, um, in uh, Exodus chapter 19 when the Old Covenant was first established. But as we read through um, the uh, first five books, um, we see Moses carrying out this role uh, over and over and over and over again where he was the mediator between God and the people. And so Moses foreshadowed the mediation of Christ, which of course was a superior mediation because Jesus was both fully man and fully God, so he could represent both parties and bring them together. And then we saw, secondly, that not only did the Old Covenant foreshadow the mediation of Christ in the person of Moses, the Old Covenant also foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ in the form of the animal sacrifices. And these animal sacrifices prepared us to understand Christ's ultimate, final, and perfect sacrifice. So the animal sacrifices we saw last time illustrated for us the need for a perfect sacrifice. had to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. It illustrated the need for a blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And it illustrated for us the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice where the sins of the sinner were symbolically transferred to the innocent victim, who was the lamb without blemish that was sacrificed, and thus the innocent victim died in the place of the guilty party, and thus redemption was accomplished by a vicarious substitutionary atonement. And so we saw then that Jesus is the Lamb of God who by the shedding of his blood on the cross is the perfect, sinless, substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of sinners. And so without these old covenant foreshadowings, if Jesus just showed up with no context and no framework within which to understand what he was doing, it would have been much more difficult to grasp and understand um, his his saving work. now, it's important for us to understand that uh, if, if we have a sacrifice, then we need a priest who is able to uh, offer that sacrifice. And so um, we come now today to this section in our book in page 145 that deals with the subject of Christ as our priest. And the Old Covenant, once again, in the Levitical priesthood, as well as the Melchizedekian priesthood, illustrates the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And what's unique about Christ is that he not only is the sacrifice for sin, but he's also the priest who offers the sacrifice. So he's both sacrifice and priest, something that we never find taking place in the Old Testament. Uh, And so Christ is not only the perfect mediator, and he's not only the perfect substitutionary sacrifice, he's also the perfect priest who brings that perfect sacrifice on behalf of his people. Now, what we want to do is turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 7, and there we find um, the um, comparison and the contrast between the priesthood of Jesus and the priesthoods that are set forth under the Old Covenant. Now, in Hebrews chapter 7, um, it says uh, in verse 1, and we're just going to kind of go through this chapter rapidly. I preach through it. We have detailed sermons on it if you're interested in the particulars. But I just want to kind of survey our way through it and see how the priesthood of Christ is compared and contrasted with the old covenant uh, priesthoods that are spoken of. Uh, Chapter seven. Well, we'll go back to chapter six and verse 20. It says, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So who is Jesus? He's a high priest. High priest after what order of priesthood? Answer, after the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then he proceeds in chapter 7 to describe to us the nature of that Melchizedekian priesthood. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness and after that king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. So he starts out by establishing the fact that this man Melchizedek, who actually lived and existed um, back in, in Genesis chapter 14, was uh, a type and picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this individual just suddenly appears in the biblical narrative. We're not told about his father or his mother. And then he suddenly disappears from the biblical narrative and we're never told about his death. And even though he actually had a mother and a father, and even though he actually died, the fact that these are not recorded... um, Pictures the fact that the final and ultimate Melchizedekian priest was going to be one who um, was eternal. That is, he had no origin, and he, of course, has eternal existence. Um, He never dies. And so this pictures the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to pick up on those ideas uh, in a few moments. So we see here that he doesn't have beginning of days or end of life. That speaks of his deity, his eternality, the fact that he has no beginning and he has no end. Now, the, uh, the greatness of this Melchizedekian priest uh, resides in the fact that Abraham paid tithes to him. And Abraham, of course, was the father of Levi. And Levi was the progenitor of the whole Levitical priesthood priestly um, uh, race and office, uh, tribe and office, I should say, uh, that existed under old covenant Israel. Uh, Verse 4, Now consider how great this man was, this Melchizedek, after whom Christ uh, obtained his, his office, under whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people, according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. point being is that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to uh, Melchizedek just like the Levites were superior to their brethren because they received tithes of their brethren. okay, And so he says, verse 6, But he whose descent is not counted from them, that is Melchizedek, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less, Abraham is blessed of the better, Melchizedek. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receives him, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. In other words, there's no record of his death in the Old Testament. Um, so, um, the implication is, is that he didn't have any origin and he didn't have any end. He existed forever, and that's, that's the, uh, the metaphor that is there. <clears throat> Verse 9, And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. So Levi received tithes of his brothers, but he paid tithes through his father Abraham to Melchizedek, thus showing the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. Verse 10, For he, Levi, was yet in the loins of his father Abraham when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were by the levitical priesthood for under it the people receive the old covenant what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of melchizedek and not be called after the order of aaron so what he's doing now is he's beginning to show the inferiority of the Arianic priesthood vis-a-vis the melchizedekian priesthood and what he's saying is that if the Arianic priesthood was as good as the melchizedekian priesthood then why would the bible prophesy in psalm 110 and verse 4 that Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek and not after Levitical order. And of course, Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. And so he couldn't be a Levitical priest. Um, <clears throat> and so he makes that point as he goes on. Verse 12, For the priesthood being changed from Levitical to Melchizedekian, there is made of necessity a change also of the old covenant. And one of the reasons why the old covenant went away is because the Levitical priesthood went away because of the insufficiency and the inadequacy of it, and it was replaced by the Melchizedekian priesthood, which was the sufficient, uh, perfect, and uh, eternal priesthood which uh, Jesus possessed and, and practiced. Verse thirteen: For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident our Lord sprang out of the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And yet it is far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, not after the old covenant, uh, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies, and here's the quotation of Psalm 110 verse 4, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof the old covenant with his priesthood was disannulled because it was unprofitable. Why was it unprofitable and weak? Couldn't produce eternal redemption. It was impossible for the law made nothing perfect. The old covenant couldn't bring people to perfection, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw near unto God. So the better hope is the Melchizedekian priesthood that Jesus had, in which he uh, entered in once into the holy place with his own blood and obtained eternal redemption for us. All right. Verse 20. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made, that is, Levitical priests were made without an oath, but the Melchizedekian priest, with an oath, by him that said to him, the Lord swore, and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Levitical priests were made priests without an oath, but Melchizedekian priest was made with an oath, and um, <clears throat> which makes it a more significant and substantive priesthood, uh, because we know that um, oath sworn promises constitute covenants, don't they? And uh, Levitical priests had no particular covenant regarding their priesthood verse 20 by so much was jesus made a surety or a guarantor of a better covenant so we had the old covenant with levitical priests. we have the new covenant with a melchizedekian priest the new covenant's better than the old covenant because as a better priesthood and as a better priest in the person of jesus and the melchizedekian order Verse 23, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. And so part of the superiority of Christ's priesthood is that he has an endless life. He never dies. And so we don't need a succession of priests like they did under the old covenant, Levitical priests, one would die and another would have to replace him, and he'd die and another would have to replace them, and you had this long succession of priests. Um, but Jesus, of course, continues forever and he has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he, Jesus, is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. And so, the priest that made intercession for you, he died. Uh, Then you had to find another priest to make intercession for you. Well, Jesus makes intercession for us. He never dies. He never ceases to intercede uh, on our behalf. And so we see that he was eternal. And And then we see another contrast. Verse 26, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So he was without sin. Verse 27, who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. And so here's another contrast. Not only are old Testament priests um, inferior to Melchizedek in that they paid tithes to Melchizedek. Not only are they inferior to Melchizedek in that they were made priests without an oath and he was made a priest with an oath. Not only are they inferior to Melchizedek in that he lives forever and they die. But finally, they're inferior to Melchizedek because they're sinful and Melchizedek wasn't, okay? Um, Jesus was a sinless priest. And so it says here that uh, Jesus was holy, harmless, and undefiled and separate from sinners. But those high priests had to offer up sacrifice first for their own sins and then for the people's. Verse 28, for the law, the old covenant makes men high priests which have infirmity or sins, but the word of the oath, which was since the old covenant, makes the son who is consecrated forevermore. So what we see here is that as we look at the Old Testament priesthood, uh, it's useful to study it uh, because of the fact that it introduces us to the idea of priestly intercession, a priestly sacrifice. Uh, What we need to understand is that a person couldn't just take his animal sacrifice and present it himself. Um, God had to authorize people, particular people to approach him with a sacrifice and to make that sacrifice on behalf of others. So uh, the old covenant priests and Jesus priesthood were the same in that, They didn't take this honor to themselves. They were appointed by God and they, and they alone could approach God. And they came with sacrifices for the benefit of others. Now they had to sacrifice for themselves too, which Jesus didn't, but they did bring sacrifice for others just like Jesus did. But, and that's the comparison. And then the contrast, of course, is that Christ's priesthood is far superior, just like his sacrifice was far superior, just like his mediation was far superior. So, just like the reality is far superior to the picture, uh, in the same way, what Jesus did was far superior to what they did, even though there were parallels, there was also contrast. And that's what we see in all of this. So, as we read about the priests, we read about their activities, we're really reading about Jesus and about his activities as these activities of these priests foreshadow it. And so we can learn a great deal about the priestly work of Jesus from the Old Covenant. And so uh, it's, it's uh, wonderful to be able to read the ceremonial law and see Christ function uh, within it. And the wonderful thing about his sacrifice is that it's perfect, it's once for all, it actually obtains redemption, and thus his priesthood was superior, it's eternal, um, it is a sinless priesthood, and therefore uh, his intercession is always efficacious and secures the forgiveness of those for whom he makes sacrifice. And so the priests would go in and they would offer prayers on behalf of the people. And of course we see Jesus doing this in John 17 with his high priestly prayer, offering intercession on behalf of the people. And in heaven he still ever lives to make intercession for us there. So he continually holds up um, the efficaciousness of his sacrifice and his uh, intercession for us and thus secures our continual forgiveness and the application of the benefits and blessings of redemption to us. So this is the value of studying the ceremonial law. We learn a lot about the priestly work of Christ and without the ceremonial law, there would be a great deal about his priestly work that we would just be in the dark with reference to. Now that brings us to the fourth and final uh, usefulness that the author of our book points out Uh, in the study of the ceremonial law. We've seen that Christ is our mediator pictured by Moses. We've seen that Christ is our sacrifice pictured by the animal sacrifices. We see Christ is our priest pictured by the Levitical priesthood and more importantly, by the Melchizedekian priesthood. And then, Uh, Fourthly, and finally, we see that um, Christ is pictured in the Old Testament as our prophet. Now, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were all written by Moses. Moses is considered to be the greatest prophet uh, that ever lived uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, He had dealings with God, interactions with God, received a volume of revelation from God uh, that no other Old Testament prophet did. And so Moses typified Christ, not only in that Moses was a mediator, but he also typified Christ in that Moses was a prophet. And so he, as a prophet, gave us the first five books of the uh, Old Testament. And when Moses came and the prophetic revelation began to be written down, um, that was when the people of God became a word-centered people and a word-centered covenant community that functioned according to a written covenant. But when Moses prophesied, he prophesied and told the people that a greater prophet than he himself would be sent to them. And that this prophet would be the one who not only was like Moses, but greater than Moses, and the people's response to this prophet that Moses pictured and foreshadowed and spoke of would be the, um, the, the people's response to this prophet would be the determining factor as to whether they were accepted or rejected by God. Now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, and we'll look at verses 15 to 19, the book of Deuteronomy, which is the um, last book Moses wrote. We'll look at chapter 18. And uh, Moses is giving the final instructions to Israel as they stand on the brink of the Jordan River, ready to go into the promised land. A new generation has risen since they crossed the Red Sea and received the Old Covenant. And so uh, Deuteronomy literally means the second giving of the law. It's a reiteration of all that was spoken of in the book of Exodus. And um, so he says in chapter 18 and verse 15, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him you shall hearken. Now, if Jesus is like Moses, when we read about Moses and we see what Moses does, we can make applications of that to Christ. And the point that I I want you to get is that the Old Testament is a Christocentric book. Everything and everyone in it pointed to our Lord Jesus Christ in some way, uh, some aspect of his person or his work. And so when we look at Moses, we look at the life of Joseph, uh, we look at the life of Joshua, all of these people picture Jesus Christ and his work and his activities in one way or the other. Uh, the sacrifices do, the priesthood does, um, and um, the ceremonies do. uh, And so if we read the Old Testament with an eye, one eye on the page and the other eye on Christ, we will find tremendous edification and value. Now, what will keep us from making inappropriate applications of the Old Testament to Christ is the regulative principle of the New Testament and what it tells us about Jesus. But to the extent the New Testament tells us about Jesus, we have the liberty to read those things back into the Old Testament. And that's why you see, for example, the New Testament writers saying uh, uh, something about Jesus, and then they'll say, you know, as it is written, and then they'll quote some Old Testament passage. And you'll say to yourself, well, you know, if I was just reading the Old Testament, I read that passage, I wouldn't see Jesus there. Have you ever thought about that you know it's like oh they're seeing jesus or something jesus did in that passage but if you just looked at that passage you wouldn't think there was anything of jesus in it and the principle that they're establishing is that all of the old testament is to be understood in light of christ but it has to be not understood in a fanciful way or in an imaginative way but in a way that's regulated by the doctrine and teaching of the new testament as long as you do that, you're not going to go wrong in seeing Christ in every Old Testament passage and statement. Okay? So as you read your Old Testament, ask yourself, what am I learning about Christ here? What am I learning about Christ here? What am I learning about Christ in this passage? Okay? So what Moses is saying here in, in verse 15, The Lord thy God will raise up to thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me. To him you shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest to the Lord thy God in Oreb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord thy God, neither let me see the great fire any more, that I die not. Remember they said, We need a mediator. We can't have direct dealings with God. We'll die. And he says, Okay, your mediator is coming. He's going to be like me. He's going to be a great prophet. Verse 17, And the Lord said to me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And so God makes it very clear that he's going to appoint a mediator. The mediator is going to be like Moses. He's going to speak the words of God. And if people reject that prophet... Then they will come under the judgment of God. Now turn to Acts th- chapter three, the book of Acts, the third chapter, and you'll see Peter quoting this very passage out of Deuteronomy eighteen in Acts chapter three. <clears throat> um, Peter has healed a lame man. He um, his big crowd is gathered and. Peter starts preaching Jesus. Verse 18, Acts 3. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Jesus Christ should suffer, so has he fulfilled. Now don't go too fast past that verse. Notice what it says. But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of how many of his prophets? All of them. There's no book in the Old Testament, not one, that doesn't speak of Christ. All of them speak of Christ, okay? And it says, Jesus came and he fulfilled it all. Remember Jesus said, I came not to destroy the scriptures, but to fulfill them? And so, all the prophets spoke of Jesus, his saving work, his person, and he came and he fulfilled all of that. Verse 19, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the time of the restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So twice he says it, right? And now he quotes one of those holy prophets. Verse 22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God rise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets. Third time, from Samuel and those that follow after. He's already covered Moses, right? And then uh, the books of Samuel and Kings follow. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. So this is the third time he said, all the prophets, all the prophets, all the prophets. They all spoke of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all that they said about him. Verse 25, you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying, here's the Abrahamic covenant. Saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And of course, that seed is Jesus. And to you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent you to ble- send him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. And that's the blessing that you get from Christianity, is being turned away from your iniquities. It's not health and wealth. Okay? It's being saved from your sins. That's the blessing that God has brought. And, uh, I mean, we'll have plenty of health and wealth in heaven, Right? Um, but now the blessing we enjoy is being turned away from our sins. And because of that, we have the other. Now, the point is, is that, um, and and we could multiply passages here. Uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. It says, uh, you know, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded all the things and all the prophets concerning himself. So people, when you read your Old Testament, you're reading about Christ. And when you read the Old Testament with that framework, it just comes alive. It's not a bunch of dead, dry stuff from centuries ago that has no application to you. You're reading about your Savior on every page. And when you do that, the Old Testament comes alive. And that's the point, And that's the value. So are 38 books wasted because they have now, you know, passed away? In terms of uh, their covenant application, they have not. Hello, Cynthia. So, anyway, that's uh, the point of this chapter. Uh, Next week, I want you to move on to um, reading chapter 11. And we're going to start in on the Davidic covenant. Okay? And the Davidic covenant is going to uh, uh, acquaint us with Jesus as our king. Uh, We've seen the old covenant explains to us a lot about Jesus as our priest and as our sacrifice uh, and as our prophet. But under the Davidic covenant, we learned about Jesus as our king, and thus the application of the um, ceremonial law, of the civil law too, of the old covenant, because as a king, he administers civil law. Um, as a priest, he ministers ceremonial law. Okay? So read chapter 11 for next week. Uh, you'll be tested, and if you don't pass, it's the thumbscrews. Okay? That's my Catholic background speaking there. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, blessed book that you've given to us, uh, the the Old Testament. Lord, we're so delighted to read it and see in it on every page our blessed Savior. Father, help us to rightly apprehend and understand him in those pages. And Father, we pray that uh, we might know more of him as we read of him in the holy word which he himself inspired as the word.